Uh, we're going to be reading in John 18, uh, to start with, 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, um, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others uh, did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were... Of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, "Um, What is the truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now we're going to go to uh, John 19, 12 through 22. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was... Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to, said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is, which in Aramaic means Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. Uh, This week... I wanted to say, uh, a verse has been on my mind all week long, and it's John 10.10. 10. And uh, it says, the thief, who is the devil, 
comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give life and give life abundantly. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in your Bibles. Excuse me. So I've had the classic um, headache with my text this week, you know, taking forever and hard to find time to write my message. And when I did find time, I just found headaches. First, Samuel 8, I believe, is a very important text in the Bible, period. Really, it's history altering for the Israelites. It's the institution of the kingdom for their nation. Sometimes talk of kings and kingdoms can leave us feeling distant. The odds are, if we're born in America or American culture, we're unfamiliar in the experiential sense of what it means to have a king and the monarchy sense of government. And I think it's naive of me personally to think, well, I understand monarchy. Kings are just basically presidents with more power. And it goes far beyond that. Uh, Perhaps where we can identify with monarchy is that monarchy embodies the nation. It reflects the nation. It is the national identity. In some ways, we can even see this in relatively recent times, maybe notable with Nazi Germany. In 1940s, Germany was Hitler. (laughs) Germany was defined by, in the world conscience, sadly, everything that Hitler was. People... Today might be fed up with North Korea. People don't like Iran. The reality is at least Christians should care about the people of North Korea and the people of Iran. But the reality is, is people just don't like its leaders. (laughs) The leaders kind of bleed into describing the entire nation for us on a day-to-day basis. So if, if North Korea declared war on the USA, many folks without blinking would head to war ready to take on North Korea because of its leaders not its people. A king, in many ways, becomes, reflects, and is the identity of his people. Let me say that again. A king, in many ways, becomes, reflects, and is the identity of his people. So let me ask this Christian, who is your king? And before you answer, perhaps you should look inward to see what kind of king you are reflecting. So I invite you to stand with me in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I plan to cover all of it as we study together, but let's just read these first nine verses together. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, 
Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so, <clears throat> so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Let's pray. Father, you've taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. And we find in this passage that Israel is forsaking your kingdom. We find in this passage that you say they are not doing my will. They have rejected me. Father, that's got to hurt you to say it lightly. But I am so amazed at how you redeem it and how you use it still for your glory. It brings us hope that even whenever we don't walk in your ways, you have plans for redemption so that even the evil we do can be used for good purposes. Help us to not be working against you, though. Help us to be working with you. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Open up our hearts and our ears to hear your voice. Say what it is that you desire. There be hard hearts. There be consciences that would presume to know better than you and your word. Would you speak to them? Holy Spirit, you can do whatever it is you desire. I pray most of all that you would teach me as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Two truths that you may at first not be familiar with. Where Israel is at in chapters 1 through 8, Israel is a kingdom. Israel is a kingdom. Secondly, you and I live in a kingdom. You and I live in a kingdom. So let me unpack this. Israel is a kingdom. They have a king. Exodus chapter 19, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Hopefully you know the story. Moses survives an abortion edict by the Pharaoh. He's a Hebrew slave. He's adopted by the Egyptian courts. He's raised. He discovers he's a Hebrew. He feels called to set the Hebrew race free from Egypt. Through miracles of God, Moses delivers them. God is establishing a national identity for the Hebrews apart from the slaves of Pharaoh. That was their identity. One such time happens where Moses is up on Mount Sinai and Moses hears this to tell to the Hebrews. Now, therefore, says God, if you will indeed obey my voice. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is a kingdom. They are a kingdom of priests. Priests helped people. Mediate with God. Priests spoke to the spiritual condition of other people. 
priests even acted as judges in matter of ritual purity or in matters of civil law. And God is saying, among all the world, Israel, you are my treasured possession. And Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy. Holy means set apart, peculiar, different, consecrated nation. Israel is a kingdom. You and I are in a kingdom. If you are a Christian, you have acknowledged what both John the Baptist, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples all announced at the beginning of the New Testament ministry, and that is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus says in Mark 1.15. We hear the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So whenever we, we believe the gospel, whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we are reborn, reborn, Jesus says that we see the kingdom of God. And in fact, John 3, 5 says we enter the kingdom of God. And that what this means is that though we have human leaders over us, we have a sovereign king over us. And God's kingdom moves and operates outside of and above the worldly kingdoms. And so this is why when you and I elect a president, we make no changes to who ought to be the president's president. And really, the reality is, this kind of hit me this week, we make, or we should make, more interactions daily with our king of kings. The higher power, the absolute sovereign. Do you ever think about that? I don't know Donald Trump as much as I know King Jesus. And King Jesus has more power than Donald Trump. I know Donald Trump's boss personally, which is really nice to think about. Israel is a kingdom. We come to a defining moment for Israel in 1 Samuel 8. The author starts this segment of the story with this background. When Samuel became old, none of you can identify with that, so try your hardest. <laughs> he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. If we're sitting down to read 1 Samuel front to back, paying attention to characters and situations, perhaps we should feel a little deja vu here. In 1 Samuel 2, we're told two things about a priest in Shiloh. Shiloh, for lack of better terms, think of it as a pre-temple Jerusalem. An old guy, an old priest named Eli, has two worthless sons, the text tells us. Since they were in different positions than Samuel and his sons, Eli's sons were literally sleeping with women servers at the tabernacle and were profaning sacrifices that were acceptable by eating meat that the law strictly forbade them to. In fact, they were extorting worshipers so that they could eat that said meat. We just came out of an episode in 1 Samuel. Stretching from chapters 4 through 7. And the landscape, as it were, has changed drastically for Israel. Samuel has moved from basically an apprentice of this Eli to become a judge. He's basically the highest human leadership there is in Israel. 
The latter portion of 1 Samuel 7 suggests that Samuel was more of a prime minister or president meets spiritual advisor. He was a Moses 2.0 more than Joshua was. Joshua was a uh, more of an army commander. Samuel is back to the likes of Moses. And unlike Eli, who is stationary at the tabernacle in Shiloh, the tabernacle has since been destroyed, Shiloh along with it. Samuel was actually doing about a 12-mile circuit between four towns in the middle of Israel. And that left a lot of land, a lot of people in cities unjudged. Just made that word up, unjudged. So, it could be that Samuel felt like some of the business in the outer regions of Israel needed to be judged. It could be that Beersheba was the origin of some problems. It could be that Samuel wanted help judging, period, and so he appointed his sons, Joel and Abijah, and they just ended up in Beersheba. We don't know why. Beersheba was about 50 miles south of Samuel's primary home in Ramah, out of sight and maybe out of mind. But the author is doing something here, reminding us of Eli, and perhaps we're supposed to feel some sadness that the proverbial ground being made in the book of Samuel has now come back to a familiar place. We're back to square one. See, in in some ways, when Eli was a priest in Shiloh, though, there was no word of the Lord. But with Samuel, we know that the word of the Lord is in all Israel. God's on speaking terms with Israel more than he ever was with Eli. But we do have this predicament that like Eli before him, Samuel has appointed some wayward sons. Like Eli before him, Samuel seems to be doing nothing about it. And so the people are going to do something about it. We read in verses 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Think about this. This is before the wonders of Facebook, before telephones, before telegraphs. But there is enough upset. There is enough of this can't be good that the elders of Israel, I'm assuming elders, maybe of remaining tribes, maybe elders of the cities. They've been communicating with each other. Maybe they've been sending messengers and maybe they've been coming together for meetings in towns. And here's what's happening. Samuel is getting old. His sons aren't good people. We need to do something. Now, again, if you sat down and read first Samuel all the way through, the appearance of these guys should raise some eyebrows. The last time that our friends, the elders of Israel, made an appearance was at the beginning of 1 Samuel 4, in the beginning of the episode, we just got done studying, and I had to look it up since the first Sunday of February. In fact, it was on the battlefield against the Philistines where they had suffered defeat. What did the elders of Israel suggest? How about we get our great priests, Eli's sons, Hopni and Phinehas, to bring us the ark? Let's just throw God in the mix and then see if we're victorious, which they weren't. They lost horribly and then they lost the ark. So we might think, oh, boy, let's not trust these guys. But then if you see what they're suggesting here, maybe they think they are learning from their mistakes. 
Maybe they're saying to Samuel, hey, last time we had some wayward sons acting as God's judges or God's priests. We lost the ark. We lost the nation. Actually, later on in 1 Samuel 12, we find that the stakes are even more familiar to 1 Samuel 4, 4 here in 1 Samuel 8. Let me unpack that real quick. Samuel, in his farewell address, after the king is appointed, he's, he's, he's crowning Saul, if you will. He's out of his way on public service, and he reveals for us in 1 Samuel 12, 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. So, the first time the Philistines beat the Israelites, the elders said, Let's have the lousy priest's sons bring the ark out. I'm sure that's exactly what they said, too. Lousy priest. No, just kidding. And this time, it's as if they don't want anything to do with God. They want a king to fight their wars for them. That's, in essence, what they're saying here. Just get God out of the mix altogether. And how about you appoint us the king to judge us like the rest of the nations? Let me say that in contemporary terms. Give us a secular king. Give us a king like all the nations in their terms when fleshed out. First Samuel 8 verses 19 and 20. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's possible in my mind that the elders of Israel don't want to have God in the mix because they don't want a repeat of losing the ark. And they don't want to factor in having to worry about if they're pleasing God or not. Imagine their criteria like Interesting, I should say, their criteria, like all the nations. They had to emphasize this because God wanted a holy nation that wasn't like all the nations. A king that may judge us. Samuel's doing that right now, but he's acting on behalf of God. But they want a king like all the nations. That is not like the current system in Israel to judge them. In other words, they want a judge that might not be so hooked up with God as Samuel is. And they want a king that will fight their battles, right? See, maybe they're tired of doing Joshua's routine. You remember what Joshua said every time they went to a town? Consecrate yourselves, make yourselves holy. Maybe they're tired of trying to throw God in the mix and losing horribly as they did with the ark. Maybe they're tired of wondering when God will deliver them like he did in 1 Samuel 7. And so instead of just relying on God through faith, they're in essence saying, it'll be easier for us if you just give us a king like all the nations. We're tired of sticking out like a sore thumb. We're tired of having to rely on Yahweh, who we can't see, but rather let's just get a smart king who judges us, a king who builds up an army, a king who is feared among the nations, and we will feel secure that way. You have to give credit to these elders. There's some understandable logic here. I mean, let's go out further than just 1 Samuel. Consider the history of all the judges. The book of the Judges describes this horrific cycle. It's really a spiral of deeper sin for Israel's people, interrupted only by brief careers of judges. And the judges themselves really aren't glamorous or super holy. Samuel is by far probably the most pure, righteous, and God-fearing judge the people have ever had. And so this is far below the lines of the Bible. This is my own thoughts. But what I'm wondering, what I'm thinking is, I wonder if the elders are saying this. Samuel, our judge, is going to kick the bucket. 
His sons aren't promising. We don't want to be oppressed again. We don't want to go back down into spiritual chaos. We need something stronger to keep our people in check. Now, here's an interesting wrench to throw into the works. Some of you are like, I'm already confused. Don't do this, Kevin. First Samuel seven is probably the highest spiritual point we've had so far in the narrative. Many of you remember last week there was this big gathering at a city called Mizpah where Israel uniformly repented and returned to God. And then for the majority of Samuel's lifetime, I'm thinking 20s to however old he is here, there is this flourishing and this peace. And I'm thinking Israel's elders have been reading their Torah, their first five books of the Bible. People are calling upon the name of the Lord. And I wonder if the elders read something in Deuteronomy, because consider this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. God says to his gathered Israelites through Moses, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And you can turn there later and see the rest of the chapter has some rules about this king. There is provision in the book of the law, Deuteronomy here, for a king in Israel. The want of a king in Israel is not sin. The want of the kind of king that Israel's elders want is sinful. Do you hear the difference in that? Let me explain it this way. I wonder if you remember in the gospel accounts when the religious people ask Jesus about divorce. As it still might be today, it was somewhat controversial topic. And so they asked Jesus, what do you say about divorce? Is it lawful? And Jesus responds, well, what did Moses say? And Moses said it was okay. So this is Kevin's lame version of the Bible. But then Jesus reveals something. He, in essence, says, just because it's permitted in the law doesn't mean it's God's intent. Right? This was written for hard hearts and sinning sinners. God created marriage to flourish and thrive. Man's hard heart, hard hearts necessitated a divorce. It's a concession. It's, I know you'll need it, so here it is. It's not a, everyone should get a divorce, so I'm going to put it in the law. (laughs) Last and worst possible scenario, if you think it's beyond redemption, beyond reconciliation, here are the grounds for a divorce. That's the feeling that I get reading and teaching places like Mark 10, 2 through 12. God's laws are are not always must do's. But sometimes it's if the situation arises. Do you hear that? Makes sense? Every instruction booklet I know, you look in the car manual at times and you see a light indicator you've never noticed goes off. What's that mean? This is a, if the light goes off, it means this rule. It's not a, hey, make that light go off. Do you hear the difference? So in Deuteronomy, we read laws concerning Israel's kings. You can read again to the end of Deuteronomy 17 and discover that Israel's kings failed to live up to those rules like they failed every other part of the law. Reading Deuteronomy 17 sounds partially prophetic. Did you hear that? When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sounds like God anticipated 1 Samuel 8 happening. So there is this provision in the law for a king. 
But it seems to me that like divorce, though it be permitted, doesn't remove or absolve the moral blame on part of what the elders of Israel are doing here. Now, would there ever be a perfect scenario where God would have gladly given Israel a king? It's rather useless to talk about because there never was. So here's how God responds to this asking for a king in verses six through eight. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you strong words. It sounds like God isn't pleased. First, this had to be a bit of personal hurt for Samuel. Hey, give us a king to judge us. It's like hearing, it's like hearing, hey, hire somebody else to do your job. <laughs> and in a very tiny, minuscule sense, I bring this up only for illustration's sake. It's like the elders of the church here come to me and say, hey, Kevin, we want to appoint you on a pastoral search committee. And whenever you find the guy, we're going to give him a raise and give him more powers to govern our church. Can you help us out here? <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Two interesting and mind boggling things happening here. God seems very upset and God concedes, <laughs> right? How many of you, this is not how you parent. This is not how you manage. If I get very upset with Calvin, my resolve usually hardens and he's going to do what I want him to do or he's not going to do what I don't want him to do. I think the response probably inadvertently also speaks to Samuel's own hurt feelings. Maybe Samuel's prayer went like this to God. God, I've either failed or they're asking too much. They want another judge. They disowned me. And God's like, you, <laughs> buddy, this is about me. <laughs> they have rejected me from, the, from being their king. It's their track record. And if you ask what I mean by that, literally right out of the gate, they're leaving Egypt, mind you, throwing off the bonds of slavery. They're already second-guessing God. Thanks, Moses, for leading us out of the desert to die in the book of Joshua. We can't take the promised land. It's a bit too big of a project for God. You know, God who released us from the mightiest empire on earth. He can't wipe out these tribals people. So, we, you know, we're doomed. Or the book of Judges. Ooh, look, shiny new gods to worship. That's the entire book of Judges in one sentence. You're welcome. And so God is, in essence, saying this has been brewing for a long time, Samuel. Here they are just finally voicing to me. Let's make it official. Let's do on paper. Let's do in reality what we all know in theory. We don't want to be Yahweh's. Yahweh's has had his turn. A lot of good it's done us. We want a king like the rest of the nations. If Egypt was powerful enough with the human king and pagan gods, if we've been taken captive by many pagan peoples, the latest of which being the Philistines, if they can be successful. But all we are is a tiny little nation squished between other peoples who could attack us at any minute. We want a king like the nations. We don't want to rely on God for defense. We want to see and know our defense because he walks among us. This is a big deal. If 1 Samuel 8 is a history-altering chapter in the Bible, I would argue that 1 Samuel 8, 7 is a life-altering verse. Obey 
the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Very upset, but he concedes. Why does God concede here? I want to be very careful here. I'm going to put forward a theory for you. Some people look at God's sovereignty and they say that he meticulously has planned everything out, going so far to say that he's even willed and decreed everything, including people's sins. John the evangelist tells us in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. James tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt anyone else. And so I have to come to this conclusion. It was the fault of the people, the elders of Israel, to want a king like the rest of the nations. So here in 1 Samuel 8, possibly about 1040 B.C., God is bending to people. God is conceding to people. God foreknew that this would happen. Now, don't hear me wrong. He's not thrown off guard. I didn't say that one coming. But he has not ordained this, nor has he willed this, nor did he want this rejection. People removing him symbolically from kingship. God says through Hosea, recalling this very moment, he says, those of those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger. But here is what I love. Even though the sovereign God is bending to the will of the people, not only is he going to reluctantly absorb it, rather it's going to become the greatest symbol, the greatest prophetic design pointing to Jesus in the history of Israel. Genesis 3.15 informs us that since the beginning of time, God has been planning Jesus. He's found in Genesis 3.15. And I love how God bends to the will of humanity in 1 Samuel 8 here. It's not what he wants. It's the rejection of God's kingship. But because of this, God is going to bring King David. And King David is a foreshadow of King Jesus. Even though he brings King David through the kingdom of Israel, it's not that God wants this. In fact, God is about to warn here what a kingdom entails. He says, now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In this passage of describing what a king over Israel looks like, verses 11, 13, 14, 15, and 16, the verb take appears five times. Key words are big in Hebrew and have no doubt God is saying, Samuel is saying that a king over Israel would be the exact opposite of God. 
See, the king would be a taker. God is a giver. God gives life. God gives freedom and liberty. God gives self-autonomy. God gives good gifts. A king over Israel would take sons for his armies, take daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'd take land and produce to give to his own servants. He would take taxes, less taxes than we have taxes taken out of us, I might add, right now. He would take more sons, brothers. He would take Israel's servants and put them to work for him directly. He would take flocks, stocks. And if that wasn't enough, Samuel ends by saying, with a great invitation to kingship, oh, and he'll take you to be a slave. But then listen how he ends. To me, this just further makes me think that perhaps the elders of Israel were blaming the period of the judges on God's watch as a reflection of God's inability to be king. Like, things were really sour, God, and they went from worse to worse. We just need a real king. Samuel says, after he describes all that a human king would take, in that day you will cry out because of your king. Cry out is another key phrase, and it's used over and over in the book of Judges. It's usually what happens when things are at their worst, and Israel remembers God, and then they cry out for him to be Savior again. They just can't handle God as Lord, it seems. So it seems to me that God is saying, in the end, you will cry out because of your king, There seems to be a common denominator between the time of the judges and the time of kings. The common denominator is answered in the last part of verse 18. Whom you have chosen for yourselves. We're told in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel is approaching their king saying, we want another. We think we have a better idea as to what kind of king should govern us. That's the common denominator, the will of the people. And God says, here's the kind of king you'll get. But it doesn't seem to phase the Israelites. We read in verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We talked about this, the criteria of the, the king that Israel wanted, basically everything that Samuel was not, and basically everything that would distance themselves from God. Verse 21, And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel again, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So Samuel is basically telling them, "Okay, I've heard you go home. And the implication is that he'll begin the process of seeking God's will to appoint them a king. Back in verses 19 through 20, at least six times do the Israelites refer to themselves. And actually seven times in the original Hebrew. We see in the words like us, we and our The demand of a king is not born from anything but selfish reasons. See, the people want their king, not the king. I opened with this idea that a king in many ways becomes, reflects, and is the identity of the people. God, Samuel, just gave Israel the identity of the kind of king that they would have, a taker. I ask you also at the beginning of this message, who is your king? And before you say Jesus, look inside and see if the identity that you have is reflecting King Jesus. 
I got to be honest, I look inside and sometimes I have a lot of kings who are takers. I have a king who takes my time. I have a king who takes my innocence. I have kings who take my joy, my happiness, my health, my purity. Here's what's interesting. As I said, God works through this rejection. Saul comes and he fails. We'll talk about that when we get there. But it seems that David, in some ways, more than Saul, was definitely God's choice. David comes and he forever becomes the measuring rod and the forerunner to a greater king who would come. The greater king does come. But unlike David, Jesus doesn't come with swinging slingshots and taking down giants. Rather, he comes mingling with smelly fishermen and preaching sermons. And it culminates in this, that Jesus reveals himself to be none other than the king of a kingdom, not of this world. He reveals himself to the great king, to be the great king who ushered in the kingdom of God where believing hearts can still enter into. And still Israel denies him. Still Israel rejects him. Still they say, not our Messiah. Our Messiah looks better than this. Not lowly, not tender, not meek, not mild. No, we want a Messiah who looks like the rest of the world, a great warrior. We want a Messiah who fights the battles that we want him to fight. And I have to tell you this, though, friends, this king of ours doesn't take. He gives. See, our king comes and he throws off his own godliness and he takes on humanity and he gives his love to people. He gives his service to people. He gives his healing to people. He gives his truth to people. And then ultimately, he gives his life for people. And the only thing he takes is our sin, our disobedience, our punishment. And he nails that to the cross and he still gives his spirit. He gives his kingdom to us. And it's so amazing to me that even the midst of an outrageous rebellion in Israel, a rejection of the king, God's got King David and greater King David lined up in the chute. And it shows me that we have a king who works through rebellion. I want you to take that to heart. I want you to feel that. If you're like me, you've had or you have sins that you're working through and you look at this and you do the comparisons and it feels like that I'm worried about the fact that I stole some bubble gum from a convenience store thinking that God's done with me. When here is God who's just been spat in the face by his own people and he says, sure, let him have a king. I'm still bringing Jesus. They can't stop that. Are you like me, a rebel today? Friends, our king works with rebels. Watch out. He works in them. He works through them. I invite you to lay your weapons down and surrender, though, and to stop rebelling. Life goes much better that way. Let's pray. Father, you are a relentless lover, a jealous lover. So many more ways than we can fathom an unconditional lover. Many of us feel the sting of guilt and sin and shame. I love what Hebrews says, that you looked with joy to the cross, taking the punishment and despising the shame. I love what Paul says, there is therefore no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Many of us We might give too much credit to the devil, but other times we don't give enough credit and realize we have an adversary who is constantly condemning us. 
an adversary whose greatest desire is to tear us from you and who tells us over and over and over that you've sinned again. You're not good enough. When here you are, when your people have rejected you outright and you concede because you know that you can bring King Jesus even from that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our king. We thank you that you are in a kingdom that is not of our world, but it is above our world, over our world, a king to where all rulers will one day answer to. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be in your kingdom, not as rebels, but as citizens and saints working with you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.